This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Hello, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Parenting ADHD Podcast. This is episode 20 already. I can't believe that we've already gotten to 20 episodes. I'm very excited about that. And today I'm going to talk about how you should look at your child as an iceberg. And yes, you heard me correctly. Let's imagine that your child is an iceberg. And this is a correlation that has been made by others in the past, but it's not a real common way that people talk about ADHD and I think it should be. And in fact, I thought it should be so much that I am releasing a new book um, on the hidden layers of ADHD. And it uses that analogy that our kids are like an iceberg with ADHD. So I want you to imagine with me, visualize an iceberg. There is as much as, and sometimes even more than, 90% of the mass of an iceberg is under water, under the surface where we cannot see it. And I think, you know, we're all familiar with the story of the Titanic. You might know the historical facts of the situation. Um, You might know the story from Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. You might have some understanding somewhere in between. But really, you know, the meat of that story and why it's applicable here is because the Titanic hit an iceberg and it sunk the ship. And the reason that it was so damaging and so impactful to that voyage was that there was a great mass of the iceberg under the surface of the water. Those on the boat could not see that mass of iceberg, and it was very impactful to them, right? I mean, it sunk the ship. What was under the surface was very, very important, and it required them to make some changes changes, which because they weren't aware, they did not make and it sunk the ship. But this is, you know, a very good analogy for ADHD and for parenting kids with ADHD. So, If you're visualizing your iceberg, that little bit of the iceberg, that 10% or so of the total mass that you see above the water, you know, the visual that we're familiar with, that has your hallmark symptoms of ADHD. That's where inattention, impulsivity, and possibly hyperactivity live. Like when you're working with or around a child with ADHD, you see those symptoms. Um, And not everybody does, but, you know, as the parent, we are definitely seeing those symptoms, right? Um, Especially hyperactivity. If you have a child who also has the H or, as my son does, has an enormous amount of H, then it's very apparent 
to you that hyperactivity is an issue. It's a struggle. Um, and, you know, our common understanding of ADHD in our society is that inattentive piece and sometimes that impulsive piece. So really, you know, these are the things that people know of ADHD. These are the things that are more communicated and more obvious about ADHD. And yes, they matter a great deal. I mean, that's what treatment is for. That's what accommodations in school are for. You know, everything that we do for our kids is partly to address the surface mass of the iceberg, those three components that are so well known with ADHD. But what I'm here to talk to you about today and what this new book is going into great detail about is all that other stuff that's under the surface, all of these other layers that are sort of hidden from view. And they're all components that a lot of people don't really associate with ADHD. A lot of people think that they're either um, a character flaw, a personality deficit, a moral or ethical deficit deficit. And they're not. These are all parts of ADHD. And I've talked in many different um, formats, writing, blog, podcasts, etc., about how not every individual with ADHD has every component that's possible with ADHD. You know, there are people who are just inattentive. There are people who are just hyperactive impulsive. There are individuals who have all three. And then there's all these other facets as well, all these hidden layers. Your child may have some of them and not others. Your child might have one of them and particularly be a huge struggle for them. And then the others, not so much. And then my child might have very little or none of that one layer that's such a huge thing for your child and then have big problems in areas that your child doesn't really struggle with. You know, I describe ADHD as a spectrum disorder. And so there's different symptoms that don't all have to be present. And there's different degrees in which each individual is impacted by those different symptoms or components. So let's jump right into the hidden layers. Again, the book goes in great detail about all of that. I'm just going to kind of give you the highlights here. What I really want to do in this podcast episode is to give you a good introduction to the analogy that ADHD and a child with ADHD is much like an iceberg. I think that that's really, really valuable, and I want to make sure that you are considering it in that way so that you're sure to be seeing these different components and these different layers that are really hidden under the surface that a lot of us don't know to look for or don't know to associate with ADHD. So the first one, and I think this one is a pretty common piece of knowledge for most parents, is the impact on self-esteem. Poor self-esteem poor self-confidence is one of those layers of ADHD. And it's very much common sense to see that, um, you know, struggling with inattention and impulsivity and different um, 
other parameters that we'll talk about can all lead to our kids having a poor sense of self. And that is a really crucial piece of knowledge for parents to recognize and understand that your child needs more help in building self-esteem and in building confidence than often we think to provide. So that's a really key aspect. You know, you want to offer lots of opportunities for successes. You want to craft activities and environments where your child can succeed. They can succeed despite the fact that ADHD is a developmental disability. They are behind their peers in many ways. And that is the second um, of many of these hidden layers is that ADHD is a developmental disability. That means that their development in one or more aspects is behind typical development for their age. We see this a lot with maturity, with social interaction, with executive functioning, um, with kind of the day-to-day stuff our kids are often behind. Um, Emotionally is another key aspect, as well as self-regulation. Kids with ADHD are very often behind with awareness and the ability to regulate themselves in appropriate ways. So ADHD is absolutely a developmental disorder. And I did not learn that until probably... I don't know, it was probably three or four years after diagnosis before I really recognized that ADHD is a developmental disorder, that those delays are because it is a developmental disorder. Very, very important for you as a parent because it helps you to craft appropriate expectations that your child can succeed at. And then there you are, you're crafting ways for them to succeed. You're helping their self-esteem by recognizing that it's a developmental disorder and changing, you know, kind of remeasuring your expectations for your child in light of that. Very, very important. And that piece as a developmental delay, it really ties into a lot of these other hidden layers. And we'll talk about that as we go through each one. Um, another hidden layer that I think is crucial for your understanding of your child and for their truth, you know, to understand where they are today so that you can meet them where they are is to see all these hidden layers. And a big one is inflexibility. So your child probably feels like they're not being flexible in a lot of scenarios. Maybe they were told that they couldn't have a particular thing now, but maybe at the end of the week, you will purchase that item that they're so desperate to have. Just one example. Um, And so they get very upset about that. 
They want it now. They can't imagine it any way but now. They get very stuck on that thought of having to have that item right now. And of course, that looks like they're just being inflexible. And I think there's a very negative connotation to using the term inflexible to describe our child or to describe their behavior because it really is only describing the behavior, which is the symptom of what is really the problem. So when you're saying that your child is inflexible, that's not really telling you what the problem is because they're not choosing to be inflexible. And I think that you know, the the hidden meaning that a lot of us get behind the word inflexible and when we're describing a person is that it's intentional and inflexibility in our kids with ADHD is not intentional. It's more a matter of not having the skills to see time correctly, to understand when, you know, Friday is, when today's Monday, or to be able to see that there's more than one way for the thought that they have in their head. There are a lot of aspects of ADHD that play into this image, this feeling that we're getting of inflexibility. And it's really important for you to see, first of all, that that inflexibility is not a character flaw. It's not an intention, but it's actually a symptom of ADHD. And then to recognize, again, that it's only a symptom and you have to look much deeper to see what they're struggling with and to help them with that struggle. So again, if you're not looking below the surface, if you're not going deeper into this mass of the iceberg that's under the surface, it can be very damaging, right? It can really impact your relationship with your child. It can impact um, their behavior. It can impact how they do at school, how they do socially. You know, it's a really important piece of the ADHD puzzle. So it's a really important piece of this iceberg that is your child, right? That is ADHD. Another piece is intensity. And this can often be seen at the same time as inflexibility, right? Because usually when our kids get really stuck and they're very inflexible, they also get pretty intense about it. And, you know, emotional control and emotional intensity is thought by many experts to be part of executive functioning, which is another piece of these hidden layers that we're going to talk about. And so when their skills are lagging with um, emotional awareness, emotional regulation, um, frustration tolerance, all of these things lead to some real intensity from our kids. Some of our kids are hypersensitive, so they are feeling their feelings more intensely. Their emotions impact them much more deeply sometimes. And that's another really important aspect for you to see and acknowledge in your child so that you can, again, craft your expectations accordingly. You know, one thing that plays into this sometimes in my family is that it seems like my son is acting like a baby. You know, he's 
excuse me, he's 14 and he might be crying about something that a 14-year-old would not be crying about, right? And so the inclination might be to say, hey, you need to quit acting like a baby. What's going on? You're you're 14. He's actually 15 now, but I still have trouble even accepting that. So, you know, I could I could really address what I'm seeing on the surface. I could address the symptom, but that's not going to help anything. That's going to make him feel bad. That's going to probably intensify his already intense emotions, and it's going to have a negative impact on his self-esteem. So instead, I could say to him maybe my magic phrase, how can I help you? I see that you're really upset, buddy. How can I help you? What can I do to help you? That can be a great conversation starter to help you dig deeper and find out the real problem that's driving the symptom of intense behavior. So you really have to, again, recognize that this is one piece of a very large and complex puzzle that makes up ADHD. Now, maybe your child isn't intense. Maybe your child is very easygoing, super relaxed. Yes, they can still have ADHD because again, all of these different layers are not um, present in all kids with ADHD. This is just all the possibilities and they could all be present in one individual or maybe only a few of them are present. But It's really important, I think, to recognize everything that can possibly be part of our kids' ADHD. So another one of those layers is emotional dysregulation, and that plays into this intensity. So I, my son, in that exact same example we just talked about where he was crying and really having a tough time accepting something, and it was very out of scale for his age, that is a sign of some emotional dysregulation. That's a sign of some lagging skills, emotional awareness, emotional control. So our kids are often dysregulated in that area. Their emotions um, might play out in an inappropriate way, um, like crying, I mean, like laughing while they're at a funeral. Obviously, crying would be the appropriate social norm for being at a funeral. Um, But they just have different ways of expressing emotion or they have no skill maybe of appropriately communicating their emotions or managing their emotions and that's emotional dysregulation and it can be a very big impact on how our kids function both at home in the family at school um socially, the way they interact with their peers. You know, a lot of our kids have a really tough time maintaining friendships and things like intensity and inflexibility and emotional dysregulation all play into that. They're all part of why sometimes other kids their same age will pull away from them because they're judging that behavior, right? And so again, these are pieces that are so very, very important for us as parents 
to understand, to have in the back of our mind and be able in those situations to say, hey, this is part of his brain. This is part of her brain. What can I do to really help him or her? Because, you know, calling out the behavior, punishing the behavior is not actually helping. So I'm recognizing that this is part of ADHD for my child. And my next step is then to figure out how can I use that information to actually help my child. Coexisting conditions can be a big part of ADHD. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the statistic, but I think that it's around 50 to 60% could be even higher um, of individuals with ADHD that also have one or more coexisting conditions. My own son is a very clear um example of coexisting conditions. His diagnoses include ADHD, high-functioning autism, dysgraphia, written expression disorder, executive functioning deficits, and a gifted IQ on top of all of that. Um, Also anxiety. So, you know, he has an alphabet soup of diagnoses. And having those labels. I know a lot of us don't like labels. We don't like to label our kids. We don't like to put them in one particular bucket. We don't want to define them just by the disorder. And we're not, you know, labels are important because they give us a starting point to understand our children and to be able to effectively help them with whatever that label is telling you is a struggle for them. So all of these coexisting conditions, the label is important just because it's a function of having appropriate information. And then you take that label as a starting point and you say, okay, so how does anxiety affect my child? And you have that list. And then you say, okay, how do I help my child in each of these different scenarios where anxiety is impacting him negatively? And so that's why the label is important. That's where this information about coexisting conditions is vital. And I think in schools, it's super helpful too. And that's probably where parents are most resistant about having labels. But I'll tell you, those define what kind of extra help and services and accommodations that your child needs and deserves in the school environment to be able to succeed academically and socially in that environment. So having those labels and communicating them to people who are important, um, formative part of our kids' lives is really super important. I know that you're resistant um, to adding more diagnoses when you already have one or two or five, but I think any time we can have a piece of the puzzle that better helps us understand our kids, it, it is enormously valuable. It is absolutely crucial. You must, must, must have this information. If you feel like there's a missing piece to the puzzle for your child, please have more evaluations done. Please keep digging and searching because 
what I have found over the years that is most, most valuable for our kids and for raising individuals who are going to have a successful, happy, fulfilling adulthood is understanding every aspect of them, understanding their truth, where they are today, what is true for them in this moment. That is paramount to, you know, the ideal parenting of our kids with ADHD. Another layer under the surface of this iceberg that we are calling ADHD is skill deficits, and I've already alluded to that a little bit in our conversation so far. These can be a number of different items, time blindness, not having a good concept of time, not being able to effectively manage your time, frustration tolerance is another skill that is often deficient for our kids. Um, Planning and organization is super um, common, you know, very, very common for individuals with ADHD to have poor planning and organization skills. And we're going to talk about that a little more in a minute when we talk about executive functioning deficits, because those are all part of executive functioning deficits. Other skill deficits include emotional regulation, as we've talked about, and there are just so many different skills. And again, that that ties back into it being a developmental disorder. It's a developmental delay. Kind of the definition of a developmental delay is that they are behind, they're delayed in skill development. So it makes total sense that our kids with ADHD have skill deficits. And some of them, as far as executive functioning goes, some of them are going to be lifelong challenges. You know, not every skill can be completely taught and implemented when there's a deficit. You know, some of it has to do with the the way our kids' brains are, their physiological brain. And so I think, you know, next we should talk about executive functioning deficits. So executive functions are basically everything that you use, every skill that you use to function day to day, to get through your day, to plan things and act on them. So it can be planning, organization, task initiation, you know, getting started on something. It can be um, emotional regulation, self-regulation in general. Um, Time management is an executive function. There are lots of pieces to that. And some of the skills can be taught and improved, and some will be improved a little and a lifelong struggle. Some will be improved greatly. Um, My son has significant, I would even use the word severe, executive functioning deficits. His planning and organizational skills are almost non-existent. And of course, we work with him and we try to improve these skills. We have been um, working on different strategies, different workarounds for years trying to help him to improve his planning and organization skills. But this is part of his brain. And so while it has improved maybe a little bit, it is 
not, I don't see it ever. He's never going to be the uber organized individual um, like I am which is very painful to live in a household full of people who don't really have good planning and organization um, and to be an uber-organized person. But so, you know, those executive functioning deficits are a huge impact at school. And a lot of times it's not really considered by the school as part of their academic capability and their academic performance, but it absolutely is. You know, my son right now has F's in two classes, and it's not because he's not learning. It's certainly not because he's not intelligent. It's because he is not good at managing the work and managing himself to get it done and to get it turned in um, or to get it home to get it done. You know, these are all very familiar struggles for a lot of you, I'm quite sure of that. Um, so that's, you know, a big piece of it. And I talked about bl- time blindness, which is another one of these hidden layers below the surface, you know, another piece of the mass of the iceberg that's down below the surface that we don't see regularly, but it's there. And time blindness is a lack of understanding of the concept of time. And then that affects how to manage time. So, you know, it's not having a good feeling of how long 30 minutes is, how long an hour is. Um, For my son, it also presents in that he really rushes through everything. He's always the first one done in class on a in-class worksheet or a test or a quiz. He gets done long before anybody else, much to the dismay of his teachers, because a lot of times that means he makes a lot of mistakes. But it's part of um, his lack of awareness of time. So he has this inner feeling that he has to hurry up because he's not quite certain how long he really has. And you you can tell him, hey, you have until 10.30 a.m. when class is over, or you have one hour. That means almost nothing to him. He cannot feel that. He doesn't have that sense. And that's very impactful. And your child might have that same piece. And, you know, once I recognized that there was this thing called time blindness and how it affected my son, suddenly I had a much better understanding of that part of who he is and why he has some of the struggles that he has. So that's an, a very important layer that you need to discern if it's part of your child's iceberg and then, you know, how you can help them with it, how you can manage it, strategies you can put in place, how you might be able to improve that skill. You know, one thing that came up before, and I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast in the past or not, but I've certainly talked about it in writing. I've talked about it with some of my parent coaching clients. Um, my son's job is to empty the dishwasher and put the items in the dishwasher away into the cabinets to take it out of the dishwasher and then to put it where it goes. And he does not like this chore. He would prefer to be doing something else, of course. And for a long time, he felt like it took forever. 
like it was really impacting his life and his free time each evening. It was a super, super big deal to him. And he made sure that we knew it. He procrastinated. He pushed back. He avoided. He refused. He whined. He begged not to do it. And he would spend you know, 20 minutes, 45 minutes even sometimes, perseverating on the fact that he absolutely didn't want to do the dishwasher, that it was too much of an inconvenience on his life. And so one day I decided to try to challenge his thinking about time, because I know that it only takes five minutes or less to empty that dishwasher and put the stuff in the cabinets where it goes. And we're still working on the fact that part of the definition, the expectation of emptying the dishwasher is to put everything where it goes. He kind of gets lost in that sometimes and will leave things on the countertop and not put everything away. And so, you know, that's it's still an ongoing process of improvement. But he just had this concept this feeling that emptying the dishwasher took forever. It was a super huge inconvenience and it took up a lot of his free time. And so I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I know that it only takes five minutes to take everything out of the dishwasher and put everything into the cabinet or drawer where it goes. He was certain that I was completely wrong about that argued with me and argued with me. So finally, I said, okay, we're going to set a timer. I'm going to set a timer for five minutes. And as long as you're making good effort to get it done, you're not dawdling to try to prove a point or prove me wrong, but you're making every effort to get it done, to take the stuff out, to put it away in a timely manner, I will finish whatever's left after five minutes. Because he was certain that five minutes was not enough, that it takes more than five minutes to do that chore. And I was certain that he could get it done in five minutes. And so we challenged his thinking. We set the timer. Off he went. I I didn't say a word, but I did observe to make sure that he was unloading and putting things away in the same manner that he usually does, you know, in the same time frame. He wasn't piddling around trying to prove me wrong. And so at four minutes and 56 seconds, he closed the last cabinet door and had everything put away. And he turned around and looked at me with his chin on the floor. He literally could not believe that he had emptied the whole thing in less than five minutes. He felt certain it took, in his words, forever. And that has greatly reduced the resistance, um, definitely reduced the arguing about doing the dishwasher, about doing that chore. Um, Is it perfect? Does he want to do it now? No. But that really had a great impact, a positive impact on the struggle that we were having with getting that chore done. And it was because he just really had no sense of how much time was elapsing when he was doing that chore. And so in his mind, it felt like an eternity when it was really only five minutes. And those are the ways that we can teach time 
skills. We can help with time blindness. We can help with time management with those skills by using timers, showing our kids how long certain things are, how long they're spending on the computer, um, how long it takes to do different chores. That's a really um, important activity that can make a big impact with our kids. Another one of the hidden layers um, is that pills don't teach skills. This is a common phrase in um, the ADHD expert community, you know, with therapists and coaches and um, physicians that really work a lot with people with ADHD. Pills don't teach skills. ADHD medication, there's no magic to it. It's helpful. It's one piece of a treatment plan, um, but just as complex as ADHD is, just as complex as our kids are, treatment is that complex as well. So you give your child a pill to help with the ways in which their brain is functioning differently, and it helps them to maybe focus a little better. It helps them to possibly attend longer. It might calm down their hyperactivity. It probably slows down their brain and their thoughts so that their actions can keep up with um, the speed at which all of, of these thoughts are coming into their heads. But it doesn't then address all of these other hidden layers these other aspects that are really important for us to work on, the poor self-esteem, the inflexibility, the intensity, the emotional dysregulation, the skill deficits, the time blindness issue. Pills, medication, do not does not teach those skills. We have to fill in those gaps. We take them to therapies. We, um, you know, work with the schools. We do some activities at home to address the skill deficits because it's about more than just treating the biochemical piece. It's also about coping with and using strategies to work around the weaknesses that come with having this different brain, this ADHD brain. And so medication alone is not going to cut it. It is not going to touch all of these skills the skilled deficits, these other layers that you also have to address with your child. So it's critical for you to recognize, for parents to recognize that medication is only one piece, a very small piece. I feel like it's a crucial piece because it really slows our kids down to then be open and able to learn skills, to learn coping mechanisms. Another big piece of this mass under the surface of our iceberg, another hidden layer is meltdowns. And this is something that I didn't really understand for the first year or two, probably, that my son had an ADHD diagnosis. And, you know, a lot of his meltdowns were triggered by tantrums. 
So let me explain the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown. A tantrum is a fit that a child chooses to throw to try to get their way. They are acting out in order to affect your compliance with their request, right? So we think about this with the terrible twos, or in our house, it was the terrible threes, where they wanted something the answer was no, and they threw a fit to try to change your mind and get what they wanted. If your child is having a tantrum, they are very conscientious of their safety. They will not do anything um, to risk their own safety, and the tantrum will immediately stop if they get what they were wanting in the first place. So if my son wants the sugary cereal when he was seven years old, and I said, no, we're not getting that one today, and a tantrum ensued, and he started screaming and telling me I didn't love him, and um, he hated me, or whatever it might have been in that moment, that was a tantrum. If I had immediately said, okay, fine, here's the cereal, it would have stopped, like a light switch. It would have just turned right off. Now, a meltdown is different because in a meltdown, your child's brain has been hijacked. They are no longer in control of what is happening. They are no longer in control of that fit. Now, a meltdown might be triggered by a tantrum, It might morph from tantrum into meltdown, or it could be triggered by something else, sensory overload, um, feeling misunderstood, getting stuck. Um, Those things can just kind of automatically trigger straight into meltdown mode. In a meltdown, they might harm themselves or others. They're not able to think about that and consider that in the throes of a meltdown. A meltdown will not stop once they get what they originally were after. So if my son got stuck on that box of cereal and the fact that I told him no, and he could not manage his frustration, he could not manage his emotions, he could not self-regulate in that moment, that might morph into a meltdown. When he was six or seven, it almost always morphed into a meltdown because he did not have the skills to calm himself and so his brain kind of got stuck and took over. Um, the story that I tell all the time, I think I've told it in two of my books now, What that was the aha moment for me to really understand what a meltdown is, was when we were shopping at the Goodwill store one night. We had been snowed in for a week. We had not been out of the house for a week. We came out for a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, and then we wanted to eat dinner out because we had been like eating stuff out of cans with no power. We were boiling snow for water. I mean, it was crazy, crazy stuff. It was survivalist mode in our own house. It was nuts. So we had finally gotten out and we were like, okay, we want to go out to eat. We don't want to cook anything at home. We don't want to do that anymore. We want a break. And it was too early between the birthday party and 
dinner time. So I said, hey, you know, I've been looking for picture frames and furniture that I can paint and use. Let's go hit the Goodwill store. It was all four of us, my husband, me, my son, my daughter. And we went in, we did okay. And then we lingered in there, which we should not have done. Um, Any of you who have ever been in a Goodwill store, everything is just thrown on the shelves. There's no rhyme or reason. There's definitely nothing orderly about it. You know, we go into Target and all the cans are lined up. The boxes are lined up. Everything is very visually orderly. In the Goodwill store, there's no order. There are sections, but everything is really just thrown on the shelves. There's no order. And I figured out after this and some other instances that that was a big deal for my son. It it kind of put his brain into chaos mode without us even recognizing it. So we were in there a little too long. Um, I think someone had gone to the restroom and we were ready to go and we were waiting on that. And so by the time we were all ready to leave the store, he had decided that he needed this um, RC remote control car that was broken because, you know, most of the stuff like that in there is not functioning in one way or another. And he had just spent his allowance at Target before the birthday party when we went in to get a present. So he had no allowance. He'd already bought like three things with his allowance that he wanted. But now he's decided that he cannot leave the Goodwill store without this $1 truck that doesn't function. And... You know, he used that whole, it's only a dollar, it's only a dollar, you don't love me if you don't buy it, and we went into full meltdown, people. He was on the floor, he was about, I think he was about seven, maybe eight, on the floor, in the store, kicking, screaming, yelling that he hates me, just complete and utter meltdown, And of course, his sister went straight for the door to escape, and dad went with her. And so I was left in there just trying to get him outside. So I tried leaving. I'm going. If you're coming, you better come on. That didn't work very well. And of course, you know, everyone in the store could see us because we were right next to the cash register and a long line of people. So, you know, that whole, I don't want to be judged, I can't believe all these people are seeing this thing was also playing a little bit of a role for me. But, you know, I I eventually got him to move toward the door, but he had grabbed onto the back of me to my coat and was leaning all of his weight backwards, trying to keep me from being able to move forwards and screaming and yelling. And I finally get him outside of the store, but he won't move from in front of the automatic doors. So the doors are hanging wide open for the whole store to keep watching. Eventually, I get him to the car, we get him inside. Doesn't matter what punishment we threaten with, nothing is changing this. He's just still spiraling, still spiraling. And so eventually we're in the car and he's refusing to buckle. So we're just sitting there trying to figure out what to do. And he starts repeating the same thing over and over. It was like his brain was a record and the needle was stuck in a scratch. And it just repeated this little blip 
in a loop over and over identically. I, I, I want the books now because I had offered him, okay, I'm not buying you this. But when we came in, I had offered for you to pick a book or two and I would buy you a book. Um, and so at some point, you know, he shifted, okay, I'll take the books. I'll take the books if you're not going to give me the truck. And at that point, I was like, no, because his behavior had gone from zero to 60, you know, and I couldn't reward that. So he's sitting in the car and he's chanting and crying. I want the books. I want the books. I want the books. I want the books. Just like, you know, a CD or a record stuck in a scratch. And it dawned on me at that moment that his brain was taking over. He was not in control anymore. And shortly after that, the meltdown subsided. His brain got unstuck. It and and what it took was for us to leave him alone, to stop trying to rationalize with him, to stop trying to tell him why it went the way it went, why he couldn't have the truck, why he couldn't have the books now. It was all a matter of him having the space for his brain to calm itself because he had no control. And that's what I mean when I say that, you know, in a meltdown, your child's brain is basically hijacked. They are not in control anymore. And it's very, very important for you to understand the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown and for you to be able to identify with your child when it's a tantrum and when it's a meltdown because, you know, you're going to address each one of those very differently, of course. And when it's a meltdown, that understanding and compassion goes a very long way. And punishment and trying to rationalize only makes it worse. So it's really important for you to understand what a meltdown is and how to identify it. Um, it it's one of those hidden layers that people don't talk about. You know, your doctor gives you some fact sheets or talks to you for 10 or 15 minutes about what ADHD is after they give you a diagnosis. But that's really all you get. You know, we're thrown out there to figure it out on our own. And nobody ever mentioned meltdown. Um, and what I was finding about it when I was searching was a lot of talk about meltdowns with autism, but not really with ADHD. But they're a very real thing for some kids with ADHD as well. And then our last hidden layer that we're going to talk about, the last hidden piece of the iceberg um, for most individuals with ADHD and is school incompatibility. You know, school is, at least in the United States and most districts, most states, is crafted, is designed to um, teach and expect conformity. They're expected to sit down and sit still for a long period of time. They're expected to be quiet and attentive for long periods of time. They are expected to be handed an assignment and to find it important to get it done, motivated to get it done, and to be able to start themselves and complete it themselves. They're expected to be very responsible and accountable to be able to write down what the homework is, take the appropriate things home, do the homework, get it back to school, get it turned in. You know, this is the common expectation of our public mass school system. 
But the problem with that is that it's pretty much the opposite of what our kids are capable of. It is expecting a lot of their weaknesses and challenges and struggles. So automatically, most kids with ADHD are incompatible for our public mass school systems. And it's really important for you <clears throat> to understand that. And here's why. Because you need to not expect for your child to um, meet all those expectations at school, to have good grades, to have great behavior in that environment, to succeed socially, to participate in extracurriculars. You know, this stuff is all designed for neurotypicals for people who do not have developmental delays, delays, for people who do not have um, executive functioning delays, for people who do not have problems regulating themselves, problems getting started, problems with planning and organization. You know, all of their weaknesses really play into all of the expectations in an academic environment. So it's really important for you to recognize that. Because then you can make appropriate expectations for yourself, for your child. For instance, I learned very quickly that grades are not everything. My son has a gifted IQ. He's 139, I think. Um, very, very smart um, from an intelligence measurement standpoint, right? But he gets mostly C's, D's, and F's in school. Why is that? You know, if I am really caught up on grades and I'm really caught up on um, the idea that if you're really smart, you get really high grades, then I'm going to be stressed and upset and frustrated. My child is going to be stressed, upset, and frustrated because they can't meet that expectation in that manner. So very early on, I realized that, yes, he's smart, but that doesn't mean that he's going to get all A's and B's. And getting other grades is okay sometimes. If he gets a, you know, a C average in high school, that doesn't mean that he is going to have some minimum wage menial job that he hates for the rest of his life. You know, grades in school are not everything. And I would much rather him be a happy person who understands what he's good at and what he likes to do and is, you know, kind to others and is helpful in society in general than to be a straight A or an A B honor roll student. I would much rather enjoy my time with him. I would much rather him want to spend time with me than to be very focused on A's and B's and grades and, you know, end of grade testing and other assessment testing that there's a lot of focus put on um, in a lot of areas in the United States. So, you know, that's why I say that it's one of these hidden layers. It's one of these other aspects that you must, must, must consider when you are crafting your parenting approaches, when you are coming up with expectations, coming up with strategies, deciding what's a priority for you and your child, that plays into it. School compatibility plays into it. All of these hidden layers of ADHD play into that 
And ultimately, they help to define your success in parenting this child, your success in helping them to grow up to be happy, successful adults. And, you know, that definition of success could be very different right? What success looks like for my child to be very different than what success looks like for a, you know, a neurotypical ninth grader. And that's okay. You know, accepting where our kids are and what is true to them helps them succeed in whatever way success, you know, whatever success looks like for them, they're able to get there because you're understanding their truth and you are parenting them in light of that truth. So that's an overview of, you know, this iceberg analogy of ADHD um, and how to kind of think about it in that way because you realize, you know, if you think about the Titanic, you think about this mass underneath that's so dangerous under the surface of the water that can be so detrimental and can totally derail you. When you equate all these other pieces of ADHD, you realize first that they're part of ADHD, they're part of that iceberg, and that they're hard to see but are crucial to change your course in relation to you are going to be on such a better track for parenting this kid. Um, the book is actually available today. Today is the first day the book is available. You can go to my website, parentingadhdandautism.com. You can purchase the ebook and download it immediately right there. It, of course, goes into more detail than I can discuss here with you in an hour's time. Um, but I think it's really powerful, enlightening information that we really need to have. And it's stuff that took me years to research and discover. And I want you guys to have it right away. I don't want you to struggle any longer than you have to. So show notes will also have a link to the book. And the show notes can be accessed at parentingadhdandautism.com slash zero two zero. And I will see you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.